0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I am Dr. Brad Berman, your host for today's presentation. Eric Siegel, who usually greets you, is the chair of the club's personal growth forum. We welcome our listening audience and we invite everyone to visit us at CommonwealthClub.org. This presentation is free as part of the Commonwealth Club's virtual program series on the impact of COVID-19 in our lives. It is generously supported by the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative and a collaborative of local funders and donors. We are grateful for their support and hope others will follow their example to support the club during these uncertain times by making a donation on our website, commonwealthclub.org. We encourage questions from the listening audience today. Just write them on the YouTube chat channel or in the comments on Facebook Live, and we will try to get to as many of these as possible. So now, it is my absolute pleasure and privilege to extend to ask you to join me in welcoming to the Commonwealth Club of California, our speakers for today's special 90-minute presentation, Dr. Rick Hansen and Forrest Hansen. And the theme is how to avoid busting up your furniture and your relationship during COVID-19. Months and months in a sweet little bubble with stresses and chaos on the outside, but warmth and safety on the inside. Doesn't that sound great? If this idyllic situation isn't yours right now, don't worry. Neuroscience and emotional resilience specialists, Rick Hansen, psychologist and New York Times bestselling author, and Forrest Hansen, host of the Being Well podcast, will teach us some techniques to head off this isolation craziness. They have also agreed to stay for a longer question and answer than usual, which will come after the initial morning presentation, uh, to try and address some of the things that you may be finding difficult to keep your temper or just your balance to join us. Just write your questions on the channel. Our previous discussions about anxiety and depression used a similar format, and they were, from what we understand, extremely successful. There were great questions that have received practical answers, so be sure to ask those questions today. And remember, thousands of people will be downloading this, this podcast afterwards, so the answer you get may lighten the day for hundreds of subsequent listeners and now it gives me great pleasure to introduce Forrest and Rick Hansen. Forrest Hansen is the host and producer of the Being Well podcast and best-selling co-author of Resilient, How to Grow an Unshakable Core of Calm, Strength, and Happiness, now that seems thematic, along with Rick Hansen, PhD. Being Well is a weekly podcast featuring lively conversation between Rick Forrest, and a variety of world-class experts exploring the practical science of lasting well-being. Being Well has been downloaded over one and a half million times this year alone and is one of the top mental health broadcasts in the world. Forrest received his BA in Interdisciplinary Studies from the University of California, Berkeley, and has spent much of the last 15 years dancing as a serious hobby. And Dr. Rick Hansen, He's a psychologist, senior fellow at UC Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center, and New York Times bestselling author. His books have been published in 29 languages, including his most recent, Neurodharma, others including Resilient, Happiness, Buddha's Brain, Just One Thing, Mother Nurture, and others. His free newsletters have over 200,000 subscribers, and his online programs have scholarships available for those with financial need. He has lectured widely in such uh, programs and settings as NASA, Google, Oxford, and Harvard, and has taught in meditation centers worldwide. He is a known expert on positive neuroplasticity, his work having been featured not only in all of these previously, but also on BBC, CBS, NPR, and others. He has a long habit, lifelong habit of meditation, as I understand, and is the founder of the Wellspring Institute for Neuroscience and Contemplative Wisdom. Rick and his wife live in Northern California and have two adult children, Forrest being one. He loves wilderness and wisely taking breaks from email. And so I welcome Rick and Forrest Hansen. Good morning.
1: Well, thank you very much, Brad, Dr. Berman. And it's really a pleasure to be here and an honor, really, to be part of the Commonwealth Club's uh, long, long history of broadcasts and offerings into the world, grounded in service. So really happy to be here. And of course, it's always a delight uh, for me to be dancing, metaphorically, with my son.
2: Oh, thank you, Dad, and thank you, Brad. That was truly a lovely introduction. And I would just like to echo what he said, that it's truly an honor. Uh, maybe particularly for me to be here in this forum that has hosted so many wonderful people. So thank you again.
0: Well, thank you both very much. And in case our listeners are wondering, this is actually the way the two of them sound when they talk together on the Being Well podcast. I've listened to several of these in the last few days, and it is just a wonderful repartee that is so organic and smooth. Um, so parents, pay attention out oh, there. thank you, Brad. <laughs>
1: Honestly, that really means a lot to me. Thank you. I did my dissertation on offering alternatives to 15-month-olds rather oh, wow. than just thwarting their desires. It was actually called gratifying control. It's really interesting. So my wife called it, I, I, the technique is switch and engage. She called it bait and switch. It's not really, <laughs> but it's, it's one of those methods that if you're a parent, keeps you sane. And, and it's a really sweet intersection, actually, which I'm sure we'll explore a lot today, different kinds of intersections between regulation and satisfaction. The combination of the two together, obviously, are really central to raising kids. You need both of them, right? And the combination of regulation and satisfaction, broadly defined, are really central to coping and functioning and maintaining some kind of well being amidst all the challenges of the world.
0: Well said. Well said. So we have a number of themes that we will be exploring in the first 50 minutes this morning.
1: So I should add that Forrest survived my experiments in parenting, kind of like B.F. <laughs> Skinner's, I believe, daughter survived some she of did. Yes, experiments on her.
0: I think mine were wiser, but anyway, he's still here. <laughs> Well, at least you didn't give him the official marshmallow test, did you? (laughs) That's another conversation yeah, (laughs) for another day. So we have several themes from which we will then begin our conversation and organize it for the first 15 minutes. And these themes are equanimity, resiliency, states and feelings, such as steadiness, warm heartedness, and wholeness as compared to uncertainty anxiety, mistrust, and hopelessness. There are general themes about meditation um, and uh, perhaps some other comments as we go through uh, at, related to your questions. So we will be going through these now. Um, I'd like to begin, if I could, and, you know, from having spoken with both of you now for a bit and the podcast, I'm just going to throw it out there and let the two of you decide how you want to address this. Can resilience be learned or is it an innate gift that people have? Or is one question wrote, how can I get me some resiliency? And how and what are the personal growth lessons that we can learn from this pandemic? So let's begin with
1: this, please. Wow. Maybe I'll start on the resilience question, how to develop it, and then maybe Forrest, you want to pick up Sounds on great. the lessons? Okay, great. Mm-hmm. Um, the, first of all, there's this classic question of nature and nurture. How, what are the balances of the proportional effects of each one, and a lot of research shows fundamentally that about two-thirds of the variation in adult characteristics, such as resilience, about two-thirds are acquired. They're not baked into our DNA. The other one-third roughly is based on heritable factors, but that means that in principle, roughly two-thirds of who we are becoming is up for grabs based on both external forces, which then takes us into doing what we can to help the world become a better place, and also internal factors in terms of how we relate to the situations we find ourselves in and the experiences we're having, and how we kind of sort of nurture and nudge and help ourselves grow and develop along the way. So, that, in principle, tells us there's a lot of opportunity here and a lot of possibility here, and as Brad and Forrest know, there's a tremendous amount of research showing that different kinds of sustained practice sustained mental effort, the cultivation of a little bit of gratitude, a little bit more grit, a little bit more compassion, a little more secure attachments with other people, a little more development of will and executive functions and mindfulness, et cetera, et cetera. These kind of small efforts each day can really accumulate over time, evidenced both psychologically in terms of how people feel and function, as well as how their family members even describe them, which is the real test right where the rubber really meets the road and also increasingly with the emerging technologies of neuroimaging mris and so forth we're beginning to see how the underlying physical circuitry of the nervous system um, whose headquarters is the brain also is gradually changed for the better through the slow accumulation of personal efforts to develop For example, greater resilience. So we'll talk more about the how of that, I'm sure. Uh, But the fundamental point is that there's a tremendous opportunity here. Inside the innermost temple of your being, no one can stop you from learning a little bit every day. And no one can do it for you, which means that you earn the fruits of your own practice which is a wonderful thing to know, including especially at a time when we feel so buffeted and dragged down and pushed around by powerful external forces.
0: Forrest, do you have anything uh,
2: to add to this? Well, I think that, that was a wonderful summary from Rick and I, I don't have too much to add to what he said in terms of can everyone become resilient? The short answer to that I think is yes, from in my personal view that this is a trait that can be developed over time. But I do want to speak to one of the other questions, which is what have we been taught by this pandemic? And I think that there are many lessons there that are uh, appropriate for many different kinds of forum. There have been a lot of social and economic lessons. Speaking to just um, the nature of the person, a lot of people have commented on interdependence and interconnection. And I think that that's so obvious and so fundamental, just the ways in which um, Mm. to be direct and kind of open about it. You know, I haven't hugged my dad in six months now. And that's a real truth. Yeah, what's wrong people. with you? I know, right? Ah, oh, it's such an ungrateful child, <laughs> like right? You're
1: it's... afraid of a plague? <laughs> what?
2: <laughs> exactly, yeah. right? So, and that's a very real thing. And that's a real thing for so many people. And I think that it's good to acknowledge the realness of it. And that yeah. like, wow, that is a real cost that we're all bearing right now. Yeah. And then the other thing that I would add is the ways in which our happiness, our wellness, however you want to think about it, has been dependent in the past on our circumstances and the ways in which we find our identity often through the things that are outside of ourselves. And once you take those things away, what's left? Like, what's left when things really go sideways here? And I think that for me, that's so much what resilience is about, is it's about having a strong core that can remain under challenging circumstances. And being real about it, I think a lot of people um, have come into a very stark contact with the ways in which they were dependent on their circumstances for a certain amount of their well-being, as of course we all are. But that was really thrown into stark relief by the pandemic, and then it becomes okay. What are you going to do about that? And you know, here we are today. So,
1: I know I've been really struck myself, building on that, by how haunting and powerful it is to realize that when the winds really start to whistle and howl, you are left with what you've already grown inside yourself and in your relationships and even more broadly in terms of the common good in terms of systems such as public health systems of different kinds and um it can be very revelatory (laughs) and humbling to realize raro uh you know i've been you know, underdeveloped, or I've allowed my relationships to gradually kind of fray and decay, I deferred all kinds of maintenance, and now it's catching up to me. Uh, and it's a good lesson. And I think that's one of the, you know, silver linings in the clouds that right now that we're dealing with, with this plague, uh, yeah. as, as a big teaching, a kind of wake up call to keep investing in ourselves as individuals, keep investing in our relationships with our friends and family, and frankly, keep investing in the common good.
0: So as thank you both for these very um, caring comments and actually hopeful ones. So in the work on resiliency, and there's a lot of work in children now, I'm sure you're aware of about that in adverse events, and I don't think we're going to discuss that today. That's a whole nother discussion. But there may be listeners thinking, to paraphrase you know, I've never been that resilient or I've had a very damaged, traumatic childhood or upbringing or even adult life. Is there any opportunity for me to actually develop more resiliency?
1: Oh, yeah. Um, And I want to kind of sort of amend or nuance what I just said earlier about the two-thirds, one-third. Because in part, that gets complicated with the enduring impact on ourselves, including on our physical health and our bodies, our physical bodies from the experiences we've had. So people can acquire vulnerabilities over time, very understandably. Um, And also people vary in the degree to which their external circumstances are really challenging them. Poverty is a serious challenge. Uh, Injustice is a serious challenge. These are real issues for people. And in our focus here, our hopefully hopeful focus on on the individual level of intervention, particularly psychological mental interventions of different kinds, such as the cultivation of grit, gratitude, compassion and other factors of resilience. We are not in any way, shape or form trying to. Uh, dismiss or uh, underappreciate the powerful effect of external forces of various kinds, including many that are unjust, uh, as well as the lingering effects of things that happen in your own physical health that that make it harder, understandably, to be resilient as you move through life. So with that kind of great, Thank s- you. established, yeah, is a really important principle. And Forrest in particular has been a very strong voice for this a very important dimension to appreciate Uh, all that said. Yeah. Starting whether it's with children or with ourselves, just think of it a little bit like this growing muscles, every day we have an opportunity and I'm working in my late age now on my physical body, like, you know, Russ never sleeps, right? Entropy is real. You gotta, you gotta use it or you'll lose it eventually. But anyway, uh, in terms of physical weight training and, you know, Forrest is coaching me there as well. Um, so the point being, uh, if there's something you want to develop, let's suppose that work backwards, you want to develop a little more, Uh, gratitude and thankfulness for the good that is real alongside the crud that's not good. And it's important to appreciate that recognizing the good that is real does not uh, avoid or bypass recognizing the bad that is real as well. Both are true. It's also true that being aware of the good, in other words, the people who do care about you or the strength in your own heart or the pleasure in a Basic cup of coffee, uh, recognizing the good that is real uh, is a way to strengthen yourself to deal with challenges and suffering and stress and loss and illness and loneliness and all the rest of that. so um, it actually makes you stronger to turn toward beneficial experiences and then take them into yourself so working backwards let 's suppose you want to develop patience, which is a real useful virtue these days well. We develop anything, as we'll talk more about later, in this two-step process of of learning. It's the fundamental neuropsychology of learning. First, we must experience whatever we want to grow. And then, second, it must leave lasting traces behind in neural structure and function. Durable changes in the brain are the underlying physical basis of any lasting development of whatever we want to develop, including a more positive mood or peace of mind or capacity to have compassion for people we oppose politically for example, also very useful these days. So we develop these things first by experiencing them. So if you want to develop more patience, you start by experiencing a little bit of patience. And then second, slow it down. Stay with that experience of patience or compassion or gratitude or a feeling of determination that you will get through this Whatever it is you value, slow it down so you can receive it into yourself and heighten the conversion from states to traits. Help yourself grow and learn um, each day. And, you know, there's a lot in what I'm summarizing here. uh, And people can learn more about all this stuff at our different websites and in the Being Well podcast. But the essence is really simple. Have it. Enjoy it. Have experiences of whatever you'd like to develop, usually because they're already present, but then don't waste them on your brain. Slow it down and enjoy them. So you gradually become more that way yourself over time, uh, and in that way, you can develop the various strengths that foster resilience, which then help you cope better and maintain your well-being along the way. Wonderful!
0: What what a what a for those who may not be aware, what a phenomenal. Um, summary of a dissertation right there. Thank you for that. We'll have more practical ideas as we come up.
1: And you could put it on a fortune cookie.
0: Have it, enjoy it. Or if you only have two
1: words, mo betta. Yeah. (laughs) More episodes of beneficial experience
0: and more internalization during them. And so now we learned that Dr. Hansen is also a haiku expert as well. (laughs) So as we transition from the theme of resiliency to equanimity, I want to get to something that Forrest mentioned. Mm -hmm. And perhaps the two of you can describe this as we go into equanimity, which is, you mentioned uh, Forrest about happiness and well-being, and I wonder if you can share with us Mm -hmm. the nature of what that is and the difference between them. Yeah,
2: totally. So, um, so this is great, because this is actually kind of a favorite topic of mine and a, and a favorite <laughs> distinction. Um, so for me, I think about it in terms of state and trait. Um, you can have state well being, but for me, the useful distinction is thinking of happiness, largely as a state. Uh, we have experiences of happiness, we have experiences of joy. And I like to draw the distinction with well being as being more of the creation of a trait. So Obviously, there are examples that you can think of where this is, it's challenging to imagine having well-being under extremely challenging circumstances. So there are some caveats to give here. But I do think that we can create kind of an underlying ground of well-being, whatever that means to you, that we rest our actions upon, that we rest our happiness upon, that we rest even our sadness upon, that we rest our anger upon, whatever Hmm. it is. Um, And that those negative emotions can be kind of negative emotions aren't really positive or negative in general, but to use the kind of common language around it, those quote unquote, challenging emotions are more like the clouds that go around the sky, that the background state, the well-being that you cultivate more of inside of yourself. Does that distinction make sense to you or kind of track? Yeah. And for me, I think it's a really important distinction because- I think that it's inappropriate sometimes for us to be narrowly focused on emotions like happiness. I mean, obviously, if we um, put out a podcast or do a video clip or do whatever titled 10 ways to be happier, it's going to do very well. Like it's a very popular topic. People are into that kind of stuff. But for me, there's kind of a triteness that's come into some of the discourse around happiness that... I don't think is very useful because a lot of what actually has been shown to lead to like lasting well-being in a broader sense is acknowledging and appreciating and accepting, important word accepting, all of the emotional states that a person experiences, regardless of if they are challenging or if they are positive or whatnot, because it leads to a greater stance of self-acceptance, which is such a fundamental underlying thing that then creates true what I would call lasting well-being. Um, so for me, it's it's it can sound a little clinical as a distinction, but I think we all have it in our own experience, right? We have days where we're really happy yeah. and days where we're really sad, but hopefully we can create an underlying ground of good experience that we rest all of those little experiences on a day-to-day level upon. So that's the distinction that's meaningful to me.
0: That's that's wonderful. That's just Mm-hmm. Terrific! Thank you for that. I, uh, after listening to both of you, I think a little bit of my concerns as I've shared with many, during this time of the marketing of happiness, resiliency, and equanimity.
2: Oh, for and, sure.
0: And um, we don't need to spend much time describing that, but but your comments really speak to that as well. So, as we shift to equanimity. I'd like to read a couple of the questions that we had listed as a way of moving into that, which is, I am so angry. I know it's not good for me. I've even lashed out those I love, feeling guilty afterwards. I've noticed inappropriate anger responses, mostly in my mind, thank goodness, like against drivers and other people. Um, or I have close friends who are very negative and fear-mongering. And, of course, the politics of the day really speak to the heart of this. And this is whipping up my fear. But I'll go crazy if I isolate emotionally from everyone. And so with those themes in mind, perhaps you would uh, share with us your your concepts or or ideas of equanimity.
1: Maybe I'll take a crack at that initially. Um, So... First, the more challenging the world is around us, the more we need to resource ourselves or engage other kinds of resources in our relationships or our situations to manage those challenges as as Dr. Berman knows really well, there's this fundamental model in healthcare called the stress diathesis model. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a very, you know, watch, it, it, SAT words. We used to call these back in our family. Of course, it was in high school, diathesis. It just basically means that a person's course through a day or a person's way of dealing with what the questioner is bringing up is a function of three fundamental factors, kinds of factors, challenges, vulnerabilities, Resources, challenges. We're on vulnerabilities and we need to have resources to protect our vulnerabilities and cope with challenges. And we can find challenges, vulnerabilities and resources out in the world, in the physical body and in the mind, which, if you think about it, then gives us nine locations where we can make things better and Since I'm a three, since I'm a matrix kind of guy, you know, three by three matrix (laughs) of challenges, vulnerabilities, resources, world, body, mind. Great. I focus on resources mainly in the mind. So that's that said, but it's in that larger context. So the point being that at this time, heightened politics, social isolation, challenge and stress, we really need to raise our game. Right. So what are we going to do? One thing is to create more buffers between us and invasive information. Turn off your phone, watch how much time you spend on news, disengage from topics with people that are aggravating to you disengage from people that are aggravating for you build more space and Forrest can speak very eloquently to this between stimulus and response the space that victor frankl and others have very much talked about as a space of freedom and possibility and also responsibility because it is up to us to help ourselves create that space slow things down as tara brock talks about it The sacred pause, you know, as your grandmother said, count to 10, sweetie, before you open your mouth, (laughs) right? You know, those are things you can do immediately. So there's this distinction that's extremely important between what's arising in our mind, what are we experiencing, and our relationship to it and with mindfulness for example we create we create more space more separation it's the distinction between the difference between being glued to the screen in the movie of what's of what of what's happening right now or sitting 10 rows back with popcorn going wow that really sucks but there's some sense of spaciousness around it you can really help yourself in that way also, regulate yourself. I mean, don't add fuel to the fire. Uh, there's, It's natural to be angry. It's natural to be afraid. It's natural to feel lonely. That's where we start. But then what do we add to that? And very often what happens is we ruminate, we get preoccupied, we start feeding and following our different little thought trains and make them worse as a result. You don't have to do that. And with training, with practice, you, you can become less and less caught up in that. And then the last thing I'll just say really fast is look for a soft landing. You know, do not, for me, it's there's a kind of humility in appreciating how actually vulnerable we are and how much we need refuges. You know, we need resources. We need, we need our go-tos that help us that protect us and give us strength Uh, and refuel us along the way. So maybe for you, for a person, that soft landing comes through just taking a breath, or just looking out the window, or just getting a sense of the bigger picture, or just reminding yourself, this too shall pass, or just turning to something you find comforting, watching a kitten video on YouTube, Uh, you know, uh, reading something meaningful and inspiring, uh, you know, uh, making yourself a little bit of food to eat, taking a shower, something, anything that can bring you back to a soft landing. It's really okay to turn to these things. Be careful about self-medicating with overeating, over-drinking, over-smoking, whatnot, you know, but turn to those soft landings. And then when you do have that sense of calming, reassurance, Relief, returning, moving out of the red zone back into the green zone, your home base. (sighs) Slow it down for a breath or two or three to feel what that's like. So gradually you start building up trait calm strength inside yourself, trait emotional balance inside yourself, trait self-regulation
0: inside yourself over time. So thank you for this because it sounds like therefore Anyone, even those living in extreme forms of socioeconomic and racial adversity, um, inequity, and so on, have the ability or the tools, so to speak, to take that soft landing, even if it's just a breath or looking at a single green space.
2: Yeah, that's right.
1: Forrest, do you want to build on that, including why it's particularly important? Yeah, I do, because this is
2: such an important topic to kind of speak to here. Um, We had a series of conversations on the podcast, or I hosted a series of conversations on the podcast with a variety of people who did social equity focused work. And, you know, you, you guys at the Commonwealth Club have had many presentations focused on these issues. This is not one of them. But just to speak to it for one second here in terms of the challenges of the moment and the challenges that different groups of people are exposed to. I think that something that happens sometimes when we talk about equanimity is that a kind of coldness enters the conversation. And there's sort of a popular view in my reading of equanimity, or to put a different kind of way, like uh, some of that... Western Buddhism, secular mindfulness stuff, um, where it's just about this cold separation from the experience. Like, okay, I'm starting to feel angry, push that down. I'm starting to feel fear, push that down, whatever it is. That is really not what we are talking about here. Um, True equanimity for me comes alongside a clear seeing and full acceptance of the challenges of the moment. You are not saying it's not that bad. You are not saying it's inappropriate for you to be angry. Guess what, if you're watching this right now and you're going through challenges, there's something that has happened to you that you've had no influence over, no control over it whatsoever. This thing is happening to you that is not your fault. That sucks. That moves us right into a total lack of agency and a lack of agency is one of the more painful experiences that a person can have because there's no connection between our own behavior and what's happening to us. Um, and I think that honestly, seeing that clearly and really accepting, yes, this is happening to me right now, and this is really unfair, is kind of the starting point for any real useful progress that we go to from there. Um, so I think that getting that kind of like warmth and self-compassion and self-love back into the challenging emotions that somebody's experiencing is such a critical part of this whole process. And, you know, that's particularly important if you belong to a group of people that has been historically marginalized, um, because a big part of historical marginalization is a lot of things happening to you that you have no control over. Um, And that is a horrible truth of the world that we are currently living in, but it is a truth, and then it's about, okay, how can we approach this in the best way possible for me, the individual? So that's just kind of my, uh, my spiel on that one. It's
1: a yeah, great- the, the, the less the world is supporting you and the more it's banging on you, the more important it is to cultivate uh, the growth of strengths inside yourself, which is the foundation of it's the essence of self-reliance.
0: So that brings up a really great question. And this is something we wanted to get to last time when we did this and couldn't, which is, can you speak very selectively about the population of people in this country or frankly in the world who must remain COVID focused? First, first, first care responders, um, all people working in the healthcare profession right now news organizations, people who are going to be doing contact tracing and others, because they form a very unique group from my observations, and they don't get a chance to get away from it. That is their job. Please.
1: Well, just on that, it reminds me of the research on people going through highly stressful circumstances such as combat and the distinction between those who are more vulnerable to developing PTSD and those who are not. So what are protective factors? And two stand out for me immediately with regard to the kind of people you're talking about, um, Brad, right off the top. One is a sense of mission and purpose, calling, the, the virtue in what they're doing, the importance of what they're doing. When there's a strong sense of that, uh, that helps people deal. That's a resource, in effect, that helps people deal with the increased challenge. And a second major factor is camaraderie a sense of community with others, you know, <laughs> when the winds are howling, when the bullets are flying, you know, who's with you in your foxhole? Who's with you in your shift? Uh, everybody. And um, the last thing I would just add to that is it can help to receive the gratitude of so many people, including, for example, Forrest and, and me, um, who so much appreciate what you all, including you, frankly, Brad, uh, in the medical system are doing to help us these days and to know there is tremendous gratitude uh, and appreciation and respect um, uh, and a a debt of honor that's given to those like you who who are doing this kind of work. That's really important to take into account. And then meanwhile, be safe today. Uh, The future is uncertain, be safe today, be safe in this breath, be safe in this shift, be safe in this procedure, be safe in this call, do the best you can. Uh, Also, I should add, and while recognizing the limits to your influence, uh, you know, it's a serenity prayer, right? Uh, To recognize there's a limit to what you can influence. On the other hand, there are the things you can influence and have the wisdom to know the difference Mm -hmm. and the peace of mind to accept what's out of your hands.
0: Is that a little bit like, I'm leaping a little bit, but you talk in a number of your podcasts and your writings about let be, let go, and let in. Mm-hmm.
1: Can you speak to that for us, which will entertain me immensely? <laughs> <laughs> so,
2: uh, to take
0: As a colleague curtain, and father. <laughs> as a,
2: as colleague and father, right. Um, to take you behind the curtain a little bit, this is... Possibly outside of taking in the good, which is sort of Rick's central practice, which you spoke to in the beginning, having good experiences, experiencing them fully. Let be, let go, let in is kind of a three-step process that is probably his biggest personal practice, I would say. Uh, Letting be can refer to an extent to equanimity. um, But I think that more than that, it's about accepting the things that exist in the world. And then we have kind of a choice, right? We can just observe them as they are, we can witness the emotion as we're experiencing it, or we can choose to try to let things go. If they're these kind of challenging emotions that we've been talking about so far, we can go through an active process of trying to, as my dad likes to say, pull the weeds in the garden of the mind, to use the metaphor that he's fond of. And then in the space that those things have been extracted from, we now have space to add flowers, plant new fruits, uh, to use a favorite Rickism to water the fruit tree, which is about kind of growing the good experiences in the mind, all of that good stuff. Um, And this is, I think, a really useful practice to frame in terms of a process that you can just remind yourself of. It's a good mantra. And one of the things about it that I like is a lot of the time when we have sequences, let be, let go, let in, there's this assumption that you're going to move through the fullness of the sequence and that you've done something wrong if you haven't. That is totally not true here. If you are a first responder and you just went through a horrible shift where you saw some truly unpleasant things happen to people that maybe you formed some kind of a personal bond with, even if it was just a momentary one. (laughs) Sometimes you can't just let that go. That's okay. I mean, we've talked with people on the podcast who do grief work. Uh, We talked with Frank Ostosensky, who uh, works with people in hospice at the end of their life. We talked with Joanne Cacciatore, who's an expert on grief. Sometimes you just have to let it sit. And part of the process is again, honoring the experience that you're having right now. It's not always about, okay, this is a negative emotion. So I'm gonna try to extract it from my brain. Like that's not honestly a very mentally healthy approach in my estimation, much of the time, if you're truly going through a challenging experience. So for a lot of people who fall into that first responder category, they're doing a lot of letting be right now. And I have immense compassion for that process. And I, I would hope that they would have a similar level of compassion for themselves. For just staying in the act of letting be with all of these challenging experiences that are currently pretty unavoidable.
0: Compassion. I mean, that's so heartfelt. So yeah. another of the themes, which we've already touched on, and of course, as we know these are overlapping, mutually um, shared things is positivity, negativity. Happiness and joy, as opposed to suffering and sadness, and then states and feelings. You you mentioned about your dad, so this means you've heard it more than once or twice around the dinner table about um, the um, gardening metaphor. Yes, lots of gardens. And in the first two of these personal growth forms that we had, one on anxiety and one on depression, I don't think we've given enough voice, to people who truly are living in isolation right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you can share some some words about this, because that may not be so easy to garden in, in isolation, when you feel like you don't have the resources and tools available.
1: Yeah, um, I've been struck by the negative impact of loneliness, which is distinct from the pleasures of solitude, especially self-chosen solitude. But I think it was a couple of surgeon generals before the current one who made the point that research is showing that when people experience chronic loneliness, the accumulating physical health risks and impact on longevity are roughly equivalent to smoking half a pack of cigarettes a day. Wow. That's really startling to appreciate. And there are research studies on the ways in which chronic experiences of loneliness have negative impacts on the brain. So it's, it's very real. Uh, this uh, is a topic territory that's per- personally really interesting for me because as a child, I was very lonely. And I had a lot of feelings of uh, isolation and rejection and a sense of being an outsider for complicated reasons, no abuse, but just the accumulating effects of two loving, decent parents who are both poor at empathy and being very, very young going through school and being a total dork and being on the outskirts of so many things. So um, I've become very interested in, in, to put it in fancy lingo, the internalization of social supplies. How do we actually do that, especially at a time where we're isolated? So I actually want to walk through five different ways a person can support can have more of a sense of healthy connection. So if you think of being cared about or being caring in a sense, it sorts into five different kinds that start in the least intense all the way to the most intense. So you could have, you can look for ways in which authentically you are included. Maybe it's on Facebook. Maybe it's a group of people you share similar values with like protect the rainforest or take good care of children. Um, you're part of a, a church or a synagogue, let's say. You have a sense of involvement in community. That's a really important way to feel connected. Or you might feel seen. Someone is understanding you. Someone is trying to understand you. You are being heard. You are being received. Seen. Third, appreciated. Maybe somebody is valuing you or they're grateful to you or they respect you or they're pick, choosing you or they're asking you to say more or to contribute more in a situation. You're valued. Fourth, liked ordinary simple forms of friendliness, like with you, Brad. You know, we don't know you super well. We've got to know you in this in this process. I feel your friendliness, you're right. We're not besties, but it's not and it's not more than what it is, but it's not less than what it is. It's it's goodwill, it's healthy affection, it is simple fondness, it's camaraderie, it's joking around. There's there's genuine friendliness here. And then fifth and most intense of all, of course, The sense of being loved, cherished, loved, really important as well. When the facts in the present naturally foster authentic experiences of that sort, even if we have to kind of look for those facts and help ourselves have those experiences, each one of those moments is an opportunity for internalization. It's Mm -hmm. as if you're getting a song playing in the inner iPod that's grounded in reality, no positive thinking here. No fake it till you make it. No looking on the bright side. The song is actually playing. You're actually having a legitimate, valid experience. Turn on the inner recorder. For a breath or two or three to stay with the experience in the classic saying neurons that fire together, wire together, the longer they're firing together, the more they're going to tend to wire together, the more you feel it in your body, the more there's a sense of what's enjoyable, it's rewarding and meaningful in the experience that's going to tend to heighten neuroplastic change in your nervous system. So those are opportunities to experience the receiving of caring in the present. You can also pull up memories, the body memory of being in your grandmother's kitchen, hanging out with your dog, you know, when you could hug your son, let's say. And that too is a way to help yourself have these experiences. And once you're having those experiences, you can turn on the recorder and internalize them. So that's on the receiving side. And then to finish quickly, um, what's really important to appreciate as well is that while... We have limited influence over external support sources of caring Mm -hmm. broadly. We have limited influence over receiving caring coming toward us. We have enormous influence over the caring broadly that we flow out into the world. We may not be able to receive compassion from others, but we can extend compassion to others, for example. Uh, And in so doing, because love is love, whether it's flowing in or flowing out, We have the capacity at any time to open our hearts, to warm our hearts, and to feel a genuine goodness in ourselves uh, flowing outward, feeding us and healing us and protecting us along the way. And that's a wonderful thing to know, that no matter what limitations there may be on the receiving of caring for you, you're not limited in the caring you can express, you can transmit out into the world.
0: So well said. Um, Thank you. As you're saying it, my body could not help but take a deep restorative sigh. Uh, You're a good guy, Dr. Berman. Well, (laughs) that all depends on whom you ask in which context. So uh, we're at the halfway point. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California, We will have the pleasure of continuing our conversation with Rick and Forrest Hansen, and we'll have further questions to explore. Again, please write them down in your virtual chats. Uh, And uh, with that in mind, I have a key question that I'm handing to you on a silver platter. Dr. Hansen, do I really have to sit every day for a long period of time to meditate, or can I do it in two to three minutes at a time? Yes. (laughs)
1: So, well, actually, that was an ambiguous yes. I mean, both are true, actually. So there is a dosing effect. Yes, the more the better. Uh, But like a lot of things, uh, it's really interesting that uh, I'm going to get a little techie here. There's basically, in terms of effect, it's an S-shaped curve. In other words, um, where the sweet spot is probably a threshold of one to two minutes, where you need to give it a breath or two or a minute or two to really start to experience it. That's where that, in other words, in terms of the S curve, it looks like intensity of benefit on on the Y axis with the X axis being effort or time invested. All right. Sure. So you need to get past that little threshold of half a breath a full breath. Just that alone is really useful Four in a row, 10 breaths in a row. You're starting to, this point or a little beyond, that's great. You can start to experience the effects immediately. And then you can stay with it for another five minutes or 10 minutes and really start to feel like you are marinating in. You are really dropping in. Ooh, this really good place. And then I often experience as a longtime meditator, your mind might start to wander, you get a little fatigued, you kind of hit a plateau. And then if you hang in there, for you know the twenty-minute mark, maybe the half-hour mark, ooh, you often have the sense of really dropping into the deep end of the pool. So uh, the quick takeaway here is my suggestion is commit to a minute or more a day of doing something meditative. For many people, it will be prayerful because they will do their contemplative practice in a religious context or in a relationship with something that seems to them to be transcendental. Fine. Or it could be entirely secular, uh, mindfulness of the breath, for example, or just doing something with yoga or movement that has a meditative quality to it. Commit to it a minute or more a day. might be the minute before your head hits the pillow, but it's a real minute every day. So that would be one thing. And then I would just finish by saying that if, honestly, if someone um, said, I'm going to give this 20 minutes, should I sit down for 20 minutes in a row or... Should I do a minute of meditation for 20 days in a row? I would choose the latter, actually. And there's a term for that in neuropsychology, repeated trials practice. In other words, lots of little efforts can actually have more impact than massing it all together. And last, find what feels good to you. If it's boring and... eh, You'll you won't stick with it. Find the meditative practice that's stimulating enough, emotionally rich enough, active enough to be compelling to you. And if it helps you to listen to one of my guided meditations or that of other people, um, because that's what really supports you in doing your practice, no worries. There are tons of apps like that uh, that are really, really useful. It's okay. It's kind of like exercise. What's the most important exercise to do? It's the one you'll actually do. What's the most valuable meditative technique, the one you'll actually use?
0: So as an extra benefit to our listening audience today, I would like to invite Rick and Forrest to demonstrate and, and share with us a very simple brief guided meditation right now.
1: Oh, that's really good. So Forrest, you want to play around with this at all? or?
2: I think that this one's going to be mostly you here, Dad. Uh, you're, the, you're the expert of practice. I'm happy to join you if it's useful, but we haven't choreographed this. So, through Zoom, okay, I think if you drive it yourself, it'll probably be good.
1: <laughs> All right, great. Well, I'm showing this really cool little example of ways to have a soft landing. In other words, this is a gong I picked up at some shop in Santa Monica, I think, uh, when I was a kid, like younger than Forrest, if that's even possible. No, I was like 23 or something. And I've carried it with me now probably 50 years, not 50, at least over 45 years later. It's a beautiful little gong. So I'll hit this gong once and we'll do a three breaths meditation. It'll take less than three minutes. It's one of my favorite practices. So if you're driving uh, or operating heavy machinery uh, while you're listening to this, just be a little extra careful. Um, and you can use your, you leave your eyes open or closed. Uh, I'm going to focus on three kinds of breath. In the first breath, breathing while feeling your chest as a whole. And if you prefer not to use the breath, which is quite appropriate sometimes for people with a trauma history, just be aware of something else that's positive for you. Could be a sense of the room, could be a feeling of gratitude, Um, but I'll stay with the breath. So first, breathing while feeling your chest as a whole. Left and right together, front and back together, inside and outside together. Breathing while feeling your chest as a whole. In the second breath, breathing while feeling caring. Keeping it simple, perhaps being especially aware of the area around your heart, maybe with a hand on your heart. Breathing while feeling caring. Bringing to mind one or more beings you like, maybe love could be your dog, your cat, friends, family, partner. Breathing while feeling caring. If your mind wanders, that's natural. Just bring it back. Breathing while feeling caring. And then in the third breath, a little more challenging maybe, breathing while feeling cared about keeping it simple, focusing on the feelings of being appreciated, included, liked, loved. It's okay if your mind is also aware of ways you don't feel cared about. That's all right. Just keep trying to help yourself come back. Help yourself have an experience of being appreciated, liked, loved, and stay with it. Breathing while feeling cared about. You might have a sense of these beneficial experiences sinking into you, spreading through your body like water into a sponge, maybe like a warmth spreading in you. Breathing while feeling cared about. All right, and so finishing here, let's just go through them in uh, a row, one after the other, one breath at a time, breathing while feeling your chest as a whole, breathing while feeling caring, and breathing while feeling cared about. Good,
0: thank you, and thank you. I have this urge to say Namaste. Thank you very much, but gratitude in any language that we wish. So, thank if you. Very could you say
1: much. a little thing about Absolutely. that? Which is, it's really startling how much difference us one breath can make, one minute can make, and which really helps us appreciate the power of little things, the law of little things. It's usually lots of little bad things that take us to a bad place. And therefore, it's also lots of little good things that bring us to a better one. Uh, they say in Tibet, if you take care of the minutes, the years will take care of themselves. Uh, minutes are within my range. Years, I don't know. But the next breath, the next minute, that's, that's a field of influence, right? And there always are little things we can do to help ourselves in the next minute, in the next breath.
0: Wonderful. Thank you. Please, um, again, I remind everyone to um, not only offer your thoughts of gratitude to Rick and to Forrest, but also for your questions and uh, concerns that we have not yet in any way begun to address or points of view that you wish to express. Since I am a pediatrician and a father, I um think about this in two ways. The first being that these are, this, this three breaths are actually things that we can teach children at a very early age, even as young as four years of age with appropriate language and understanding to that child. The second is that breath seems so important for parenthood Hmm. before we comment or respond or react to our children. Forrest, did you find that your father would sometimes have to take (laughs) very deep, careful breaths as a parent? Oh, the longest breaths. Um, No, all joking
2: aside, uh, I think that you're totally right on here, Brad, that these are such critical skills, both for kids and for parents, and they're such a great and simple way to create that space that you were referring to a second there between something that happens to us and then whatever happens next. Sure. Um, because if we could get into this on a lot of different levels. We could talk about it neurologically or right. practically, but just realistically the fast firing systems in our brain and our heart and our body, whatever, they uh, can be a little charged. They can have good charge or they can have problematic charge. <laughs> And a lot of becoming a skillful person comes back to identifying which of our habits are okay for us to just act upon freely without reflection and which of them require us to kind of tap the brake a little bit as we're going to go sliding on into home plate. Um, and I think that when we're dealing with those fire or off emotions, the cliff or off the cliff, right? Well, <laughs> yeah, <for sure. laughs> Learning how to tap
0: the brake by applying some breath is a great personal practice to take on. It certainly is. Um, yeah. It is what, teachers say all the time and mean without understanding necessary what's behind it, which is use your words. Mm. When yeah, in fact, totally. it isn't using your words, it's let's take deep breaths.
1: Mm. Yeah.
0: Wonderful. I so, would say
1: certainly as a parent, you know, one thing I discovered as a kind of California mellow guy, I had a temper and um, so, as Forrest knows, I could get irritable and roar, cranked up about how it ought to be and whatnot. And the truth is, as Forrest acknowledged, we're going to have reactions. I think of the, you know, basically in terms of biological evolution, we've got a nervous system that's been evolving for 600 million years. I mean, we are walking museums and in effect, or zoos. It's like within us all is our inner lizard, mouse and monkey, as well as other characters and so forth. So stuff's going to arise. The question becomes, what's our relationship to it and how rapidly can we move into repair? right? So even if we do lose it a little bit, we want to learn from that so we don't lose it so readily the next time our kids run out into the street or something. Um, And also, we clean it up later. I mean, that's the big thing. We're always going to wobble in our relationships, right? Rust never sleeps. The fabric of a relationship is continually fraying. Therefore, we need to invest in continual mending and repair. And as long as you can be counted on to repair, That's the fundamental thing. And if you're thinking about people in relationships and who's safe to be with and who rather, on the other hand, you're going to want to sort of take a step back or maybe shift the frame of your relationship, it boils down a lot to the capacity of the other person and yourself, of course, as well for repair
0: repair is such an important word and concept and something that maybe we will continue to, to mention as we move forward. Thank you both very much. I would again remind listeners to please write questions in the chat lines that you have available through whichever technology you are using. So a couple of things that have come up thematically as questions. Um, As the COVID-19 isolation drags on, and my hunch is that we are going to go through ups and downs um, and not just that um, I'm feeling more and more sad and tired. It seems that this will never end. I'm afraid I may lose my job if I don't fix my attitude. I may insult or turn away or push away others who are important to me. And I'm feeling resentful about this whole situation I either want to hide or blow up, and I cannot seem to control it. Gentlemen, do
2: you want me to jump into the pool here first Dad? Okay. Um, I want to talk to about something that I've been thinking about a lot recently actually, and it's this idea of allostatic load. Um, mm-hmm. It's a very fancy phrase. It's not how we talk about it casually. It basically just means stress. Um, but the important word in, in that phrase there's allostatic, okay, whatever that means load. Something that increases over time. These things build up in us. And just because we might have the experience six months into this process or whatever, we were on day whatever of quarantine, um, that doesn't mean that we're actually having the experience in the body of being any closer to the end of it than we were at the beginning. Because at the beginning, we were fresh. Now we are not fresh. We are worn down. And I think that having an appreciation for the way in which these experiences accumulate over time allow us to, again, move more into that stance of self-compassion. And for me, again, reinforcing that I've done what I can in my life, that I've taken the good practices that I can, that I've tried to be nice to other people, that I've done my due diligence with calming myself down or interacting with other people in a skillful way, whatever it is, can actually be a resource that I then draw upon to do that more in the future. Um, But again, part of that comes back to the acknowledgement that this stuff is hard and it's getting worse as time goes on. And we need to find little ways to, to use a phrase I like to use sometimes to like let the fizz out of the bottle, let the frustration out, <laughs> primal scream at the sky, punch a pillow, like do whatever you got to do to get it out of the body, you have to release the load that builds up over time. So if we're just moving through this very constrained very lonely, as we were saying before, a very tight way of operating where we're afraid about letting anything out because it could come off cross as being too angry or too sad or too strong, whatever it is, the bottle's eventually gonna pop. You're gonna pop at somebody. It's not a sustainable environment to keep on existing in. So I think that finding those little practices, ways to let that fizz out can be super mentally healthy, whatever that is for you, whether it's some of the self-care activities that Rick was talking about earlier, Or it is having, hopefully, somebody in your life that you can sit down with and say, hey, can I just vent to you for five minutes? And I'm just going to complain about everything, and I would prefer if you don't judge me too harshly for it at the end of it. And then we'll kind of forget it ever happened. Whatever it is that you can do with somebody else to let that energy out, I think is really good for
0: people. Boy, that taps into so many things we've been discussing this morning, from isolation to resilience to equanimity. So my follow-up question, and then we'd love to hear from you, Rick, is, but how can I do this when everybody else may be feeling the same thing as well?
1: Yeah, so if we're completely flooded in the moment with an experience, every molecule of us is overwhelmed by an experience. All we can do is simply be with it. In terms of that model Forrest talked about earlier, let be, let go, let in. All we can do is just be with it right at the storm, try not to pour gasoline on the fire. Okay. But other than those moments of overwhelming shock or the most severe possible pit of clinical depression or terrible pain, other than in those moments, more than one thing is going on in the mind. More than one thing is going on around a person. Water is still coming out of faucets. You can still breathe. And naturally, as you exhale, inherently in your body, what's called the parasympathetic branch of the nervous system engages as you exhale, which slows the heart rate and brings you a little bit more calm. Tasting something good, whatever your preferred form of good is, you know, is a natural Beneficial experience to have. So, even if those other people are upset and freaking out, even if inside your mind is a lot of worry and anxiety, even if in the moment you're hearing a siren outside your door, other things are also true. And that's where there's just no way around it. It's kind of old school, but it's real. We have to exercise our will, we have to control and willfully place our attention on things that are beneficial to us and others and disengage attention, withdraw attention from things that are no-win scenarios, tunnels with no cheese, dogs that won't hunt, problems that we just can't solve, right? We just have to do it. There's no way around it. So I'm. this is Coach Rick talking here, but it's bottom line true. We do need to exercise some control over what we put attention on and it's very, very important to help ourselves have many little moments Mm. over over an hour in which we think of the range of experience from solid green through chartreuse, yellow, orange, pink, deep red, right? We're tough critters. We can clock brief periods of time in extreme red, but if we're living in the red zone, or scarlet orange almost all the time, that will gradually accumulate so much allostatic load, as Forrest said, the gradual wear and tear, that will break down. So it's really important to come out of the red zone many, many times a day, disengage and turn towards something that actually is authentically reassuring, calming, enjoyable, satisfying, connecting, nurturing, whatever, in this moment again and again and again. And uh, it's that business of taking care of the minutes. So the years will take care of themselves. Take care of this breath worth of what you're feeling right now. We have the ability to do that. It doesn't mean at all denying the crowd around us. Uh, I have a little saying, deal with the bad, turn to the good, take in the good, right? We have to deal with the bad around us. But meanwhile, There are so many other things we can be aware of. And by resting in those real experiences for a few seconds in a row, a few breaths in a row, multiple times over a day, much research shows that those little stress breaks uh, actually are like circuit breakers. Uh, They disrupt the accumulation of allostatic load. And in the process of Turning more toward yellow, chartreuse, and green authentically, and then internalizing those experiences, you build up an inner core of resilience so that as you do that, increasingly, the kind of stressors or stimuli or other people, they used to take you to a 10 Uh, On the negative reaction scale, and there's no 11, it's not like spinal tap, you know, where there's an 11, but you stop at 10, right? You don't go beyond it. More and more what happens They, those other people do that thing, or you see that face on the news, or you think about extra Y, instead of reacting as a 10, you start reacting as an 8 and then a six, a four, or a two, and then gradually over time, you hardly react at all. That's the fundamental process. You know, disengage from what's not helpful for you, what makes you suffer, what makes you upset, what makes you feel crazy. Disengage from that authentically and engage with the genuine experiences
0: that feel rich and nurturing and real. So so thank you. So thinking about this, and not to put either of you on the spot at all, Put Forrest on the spot, please. We live on the spot. (laughs) Is this doable in a life that is experiencing persistent adversity and or catastrophe? Oof. Um, I mean, I think, for example, and it's not made the news, which is remarkable for where we are, is there's a hurricane that came and went. Yeah,
2: South. so I'm, I'm, I want to speak to that for a second, because this is, again, one of those things that I've been thinking, we actually had a conversation that was almost exactly on this topic on the podcast recently. Um, when you are in a burning building, yes, it is inappropriate for you to say, wow, I'm getting, I'm getting a little high stress here. I should calm myself down. <laughs> <laughs> that is inappropriate. It is also inappropriate, in my opinion, for you to run out of the burning building get onto the lawn of the house, and think to yourself, okay, now it's my opportunity to return to perfect zen. I don't think that that's realistic, and I don't think that that's healthy. So there is a natural rising in the body, a natural response that's going to happen when we face extreme challenges. Um, if I'm in the middle of a hurricane, I'm going to spend three days feeling really stressed. That's just the bottom line. I'm going to spend three days feeling really stressed, and. Again, some of this is about accepting what's actually true out in the world. None of this is about pushing away what's actually true out in the world.
1: Maybe you've got an aging parent in nursing care or in an ICU you cannot visit. Of course you're going to feel horrible.
2: Of course. Of course. And this is, you know, there is no solution for that to be found in anything that you're going to consume from somebody who works inside of the self-help industrial complex. And if anyone is selling that to you, they are doing it in bad faith. Um, And I just want to be really, really clear about that, because I think that's really important. So then the question is about, okay, what happens next? Once the fire is out, once you are turning back toward the ruins of your house, you are safe, you're okay, but this horrible thing has happened to you, then what? And that's really what the, um, the practices and skills that Rick and I talk about are directed at. They're, they're not really directed at putting out the fire because sometimes bad things happen, but they're directed about, okay, what do we have influence over and what can we do next? And inside of that framing, that context, yeah, I think that these skills are available to almost anyone. I want to be cautious about corner cases, whether biologically, neurologically, or otherwise, life circumstance, whatever it might be, but 95% distribution, yeah, I think that they're available. Um, and... A lot of our response in the moment to the burning building is about the work that we did before the building was lit on fire. And that's really what we're talking about here, I think, in terms of the coronavirus pandemic, right? Because a lot of things have been revealed in terms of how resilient are we really? You know, how culpable am I really to myself for my own behavior, for my own well-being, my own mental happiness, whatever it might be. And the more work that we do when the house isn't on fire, the better off we'll be if it ever does catch fire. So that's what I would kind of say about that.
1: I want to add to or underline the whole idea of the good that endures. And this (laughs) could be understood uh, as some kind of Pollyanna-ish thing, but it's not. It's the foundation really of wisdom Drawn from, just think of all the examples of people dealing with the worst possible circumstances, right, through the, let's say, civil rights movement in America, the Dalai Lama today, people talking about grappling with oppression of one kind or another, horrible chronic physical pain. The people who have wisdom about that um, are people who are very straightforward, they're, they're bull about good trouble, as John Lewis, bless his memory, put it. You know, dealing, fighting the good fight, speaking truth to power, while also recognizing the good that endures. And there's a lot of good that endures. Uh, The stars in the sky, the natural innate goodness in your own heart, all the good things you've ever done will never not have occurred. That can never be taken away from you, no matter what is happening around you. The good in your relationships with other people. Um... The beauty around you, uh, the, you know, little things like being able to listen to music you like kind of when you want, Uh, modern medicine, uh, the development of science and technology, the slow emergence of civil society out of the ruins of the game of thrones, who knew Uh, slowly, but surely, right? The good that does endure, be aware of that as well. That's a tremendous refuge and resource and pit stop and Oasis. Uh, And the more, That things are hard or difficult, the more important it is to be aware of the good that endures.
0: As we listen to both of you, there is such a heartfelt genuineness to your messages that we don't hear very often and really applies in much broader circles, or I don't even like the word bubbles anymore, but circles (laughs) than we think. So thank you for that. Thank you, Brad. There is a continuing question that will probably come up if we do 27 more of these. (laughs) And it is along the lines of I have a hard time sleeping. Mm -hmm. And I want, and I could go further, but you Mm -hmm. know this well, please Forrest.
2: Yeah. So, um, common problem on a lot of different levels. So anxiety, fear, sadness, whatever, these preoccupations, um, when we, in my experience, when we relax the mind from active thinking, it moves into background thinking. Again, we could talk about this neurologically, but let's just talk about it kind of simply sure. or shockably. um If I am focused on a task, my mind is consumed with the task. When I am no longer focused on a task, All the other stuff pops up into the consciousness, right? And for a lot of people, because they're task-oriented throughout the day, particularly if you're, say, a middle-aged person, you have a kid, you have a job, you're doing a lot of stuff. So then what takes over when you finally lay down to go to sleep at night? Well, it's all the things you didn't think about when you were preoccupied with doing And for me, again, it's kind of a fizz out of the bottle thing. And one of the things that's nice about meditation and mindfulness practice is it gives your brain an opportunity to not do anything for a period of time. At a high level of mindfulness practice, you can think about having an occupation with the brain as you are just passively witnessing. But at kind of an entry level or just as like a good, nice self-care activity, having an opportunity to sit and to intentionally not do anything If it's for five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, one minute, do it while you're doing the dishes. Just let the brain drain out and try to get some of that fizz out of the bottle before you lie to bed um, to try to go to sleep. And generally for me, because I actually had this problem at the beginning of the pandemic, I couldn't sleep. Um, It was like a light insomnia thing going on. And what I started doing was when I just had basic moments in my day, doing the dishes, cleaning the house, uh, driving in the car. I actually stopped listening to podcasts, which is not a piece of advice I should be giving people as somebody who hosts a podcast, but I would always listen to a podcast (laughs) in the car when I was driving. And what I found was that my brain was just spending the whole day working. So I stopped listening during the drive and I just let myself veg out. And all of a sudden I started sleeping better at night. So that's not a specific intervention, but it's a general intervention that I think might help this person with their problem.
0: Well, I actually think that's a very specific intervention. Oh, okay. Rick mentioned yeah. this earlier, which mm-hmm. is how do you stop the, or turn off the influx? Yeah. Uh, and of mm-hmm. course, I think about media in particular, and news sources and the stories and so on. Rick, is there more that you wanted to add to this, please?
1: Um well, it's a great question. And as I age, which is normal as people age, sleep tends to be lighter and more readily disrupted. And then you have other things coming in with physical health, like pain in your knee, keeping you awake, et cetera. One of the things that researchers have found about this is that if you get upset about not sleeping, that will add to your insomnia. And one of the fundamental moves here, which goes back to that structure of let be, let go, let in, is to accept the way it is, uh, to, to be with it, and to try to minimize, to use a kind of a metaphor, the secondary reactions, the extra darts and arrows and so forth that we throw at whatever painful, difficult, challenging experience we're having at the time. And uh, I know for myself, if if I'm awake uh, at night, um, one thing is to simply use it as an opportunity to do a little personal practice. Uh, When we're in, in that kind of almost asleep stage, it's it's an opportunity for a lot of learning, actually, in a funny in a broad kind of sense. So if you're awake, see if it helps you to be aware of your body as a whole. Uh, bring awareness to sensations neurologically what that will do is it'll reduce inner chatter if you focus on sensations also the more you get a sense of things as a whole like your chest as a whole or your body as a whole also neurologically which is really really interesting that tends to reduce activity and technically the default mode network in your brain whereas i think of it the ruminator (laughs) where we go uh, when we're just kind of thinking and thinking and thinking about stuff, including with negative preoccupations. So the sense of things as a whole. I mean, you may not get more sleep, but at least the wakefulness you're having at the time will be nurturing to you. It'll Be good for you in some ways. It'll be an opportunity for practice. And it may well take you down that lovely slippery slope uh, so that the velvet trapdoor of sleep opens up
0: beneath you. (laughs) (laughs) Trapdoor of sleep. Uh, My, what images. (laughs) We have about six minutes left to our listening audience. Uh, We are um, just learning and benefiting so greatly from the words and wisdom of Rick and Forrest Hansen. Um I would like to see if in the next 2 minutes without in you know anybody having to close their eyes, you could either of you give like a 30 second or 60 second example of how somebody might begin to sort of disengage those thoughts. The wording of that. Like a little sleep induction for example.
1: Sure. Uh,
2: what we'll works uh, for you Forrest? Yeah. Yeah, so um Here's here's what I do sometimes and I'm Wait. just going to do this in real time alongside. So I'm not going to close my eyes because I'm I'm talking and you know, it's helpful for me to keep them open, but often what will happen is that um I will feel myself when I'm thinking. I try to bring consciousness for starters to where the thoughts are. For me that's normally here and I'll literally have a somatic experience of my own self-thinking right here. And then what I try to do for myself is I try to relax my eyebrows out like this, like literally think about my face widening and softening. And I try to bring my focus from up here, for me it's my temples, and I try to put it down in the back of my neck and then let that again widen and soften. It's a very somatic experience. And then what you can do is you can think about that as almost like a little ball of energy. And I try to push it down in my body Until it gets down into my pelvis and you might be able to actually see my stance shift a little bit and then down all the way until it's down in my feet and then my feet feel very heavy and for me if i just kind of repeat this process and i bring really conscious attention to the experience of the body the thoughts calm down i'm not thinking anymore i'm feeling i'm feeling my core i'm feeling my weight i'm feeling whatever it is Um, and I, i find that a very useful practice now of course at the end of that, as Rick was saying when he was doing the meditation, it's normal for the thoughts to reemerge. That's okay. You can witness the thoughts. You can see the thoughts. Whatever you got to do. Then notice where the thoughts are. Start to move them down through the body. widen and soften. That generally helps me at least relax, if not actually fall asleep.
0: Mm. How wonderful. Mm. That's beautiful. Yeah, like, that is beautiful. We have about four or five minutes. I'm going to try that tonight. Now that I have your email, (laughs) I will let you know how that goes. (laughs) There, There is a very poignant question that grabs at me. So I'm going to ask it as a way for the both of you to sort of address it and perhaps sort of summarize in the last few minutes before we complete today, which is my young grandsons live far away. I will practice being grateful for the time I have had with them and remind myself that this is not forever. Have you any other suggestions getting through this? And it's that poignancy that sort of taps into everything we've spoken about.
1: Yeah. Um, well, first, um, I think to build on something that Forrest said early on that's really important, the power of self-compassion. There's found, It's foundational practices of acceptance. It is the way it is. We don't prefer it. We don't like it. Their problems with it, and it is the way it is. We're not adding our friction to the rope of time moving through our hands. It is simply what is, um, and with that acceptance, can come compassion for others, compassion and understanding of the larger whole, the vast factors that are leading to this particular circumstance of separation from beloved grandchildren, and also compassion for oneself, the one who is you know, sorrowful about this, sad about this, frustrated about this, missing out in some way. Self-compassion. It's not wallowing in self-pity. It's it's respectful, actually. There's an awareness of pain or difficulty with primarily uh, a sense of support and caring and understanding for what a person's feeling. Compassion is bittersweet. There's the bitter of the empathy for the suffering, but there's mainly the sweet mainly the sweet so that we don't get so exhausted uh by what we're feeling all right so compassion and then some other weird little tricks uh i think about our profound human capabilities for empathy for imagining or getting a felt sense inside ourselves of what it's like for others and a felt sense of our connection with others even when we're separated from them this time of COVID is challenging us, as Forrest said at the very beginning, to recognize uh, what we've already developed inside ourselves and what would be useful to develop more of, including the capacity for empathic imagination or imagining uh, the feeling. I mean, in other words, or getting in touch with the feeling of connection, let's say, with beloved grandchildren. So focusing on that visualizing a sense of them. Uh, I talked with little kids. I would talk about who are being separated from their parents. I've done a lot of child therapy. Uh, You know, I share that with you, Brad, a little bit. Yeah, I want to talk about that. Yeah. And uh, I would tell kids, well, it's imagine like a rope of light, a golden rope of light connecting you with the other person that can stretch but never break. And so you're continually connected or just whatever works for you that gives you that feeling of connection. Yeah.
0: So with that rope of light, um, hopefully we all grab onto that and help weave it more. We will be coming to a close today. The time just goes flying by. It's wonderful. Our gratitude to Dr. Rick Hansen and Forrest Hansen for sharing their experience, their expertise, flexibility, and frankly, each other with the unique format for this presentation today. We are also so grateful to our live listening audience, as well as those who will access this recording at another time. And now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, commemorating its 116th year of enlightened discussion, is adjourned. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher.